This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. If it was possible to look at one of the highest points in London, Ontario, and create our own Mount Rushmore of political leaders, it would be very easy to put the face of Jane Bigelow onto that Mount Rushmore. Maybe the, the side of Bowler Mountain. I'm not sure how we would do it. I'm not an engineer. Can you tell? But Jane Bigelow is someone who had that kind of impact on this city. We've been blessed with a lot of amazing mayors over the time of London, Ontario. Sadly, Jane Bigelow has passed away at the age of 92, but it gives us an opportunity to look back at her life and her legacy. And to help us out with that, we would like to welcome another former London mayor to London Live. Please welcome Diane Haskett. Diane, how are you? Oh, Diane, can you hear us all right? Or did we lose contact? We may have lost Diane. We will get her back, and we will talk about Jane Bigelow and the legacy that she had as London's first female mayor. And if you look at the significance of that, again, we've had a lot of great and powerful leaders. Diane, sorry for the the misconnection at the beginning. How are you? Oh, I'm very well, thank you, Mike, and thank you for getting in touch. I really wanted to express, if I may, first uh, my deepest condolences uh, to Mayor Bigelow's family. Um, it's truly a great loss to them and a great loss to London when when Mayor Jane Bigelow passed away. Although, of course, her legacy, as you mentioned a minute ago, her legacy will always remain over London. Let's maybe try and put this into perspective. If we were to go back into the very early 1970s, and say, you know, we're going to have the mayor of a city, and that mayor is hands down going to be a female politician. How monumental was that? Well, it was certainly monumental for London, because, of course, in those days, it was a very staid, conservative community. Um, it wasn't entirely monumental for Canada because uh, we had had some pretty amazing women mayors um, that went ahead of her, like Charlotte Whitten in Ottawa, who became an international figure. And there was a very strong woman um, representative on council, Margaret Fullerton, who um, always let everybody know that it was not entirely a men's club. So we had some good examples, but... Mayor Jane really, um, she really set the stage for those of us who followed. And um, by the time uh, I had become mayor, and of course, Joni Beckler and Anne-Marie de Cicobest, uh, by the time uh, we came along, um, there really wasn't discrimination against women on council, nor did anyone think that a woman could not do the job as mayor. So we owe a great debt of gratitude to Mayor Jane for that, and uh, I'll always be uh, thankful for that. Um, I wanted to say, by the way, that um, there was a wonderful opportunity. Of course, I used to see uh, Mayor Bigelow every four years at the inaugural meeting of council. She and I always like to attend. But there was a very special time in 2014 when 
the inaugural meeting was held at the convention center, and all four of us, former women mayors, were in attendance. And the, the free press did a wonderful photo, and it was truly special to be standing there together and talking and reminiscing. Diane Haskett joining us as we remember the life and the legacy of Mayor Jane Bigelow. For anyone who didn't have the pleasure of meeting Mayor Bigelow, can you tell us who she was, what she was like? Well, she was certainly very, very true to herself, as many people have said. Um, she, I think, enjoyed breaking with tradition. Um, she, as you know, rode a bike for her mode of transportation. Uh, when Queen Elizabeth came to London, Ontario for a, for a very high-profile visit, Jane chose not to follow protocol and didn't wear a hat. And by the way, the, I don't think it upset the Queen at all. If you look at pictures of that visit, the Queen seemed very happy in the presence of, of our mayor, who was a very, very gracious host for the occasion. But it was a huge, huge thing for London and the Commonwealth that a mayor would not greet the Queen with a hat on. It was just the tradition in those days. Um, uh, mayor Jane was very brave and bold, and... Um, uh, of course, she's known uh, very much for her policies that were a little bit out of the ordinary for this very conservative city. She stood for the environment, for social issues, for the underdog in many cases, for the arts and women's rights and so forth. So it really began to give another side to London's personality, which I think was a very good thing. We became a much more balanced city when she was mayor. Sounds like there could have been some great debates, great conversations, because of what she stood for. Absolutely, and clearly she never lost her interest in, in politics or in London. And um, I know many people have stories to tell of the conversations that they had with her over the course of time. And, um, you know, it's, it's wonderful in a way that everyone is now... Uh, taking the time to remember her and the tremendous legacy that she left. And, of course, I'm not sure if anyone has mentioned, there's an absolutely amazing portrait of her, huge portrait of her in City Hall. I believe it was painted by Greg Curnow, the famous London artist, but it's unlike all the other mayoral portraits in very, very bright and neon-type colors, and it's definitely worth taking a look at. Absolutely. We're talking with Diane Haskett about the life and the legacy of former London Mayor Jane Bigelow. And one of the other things that has come up in so many conversations is the foresight. And political leaders who do very well always have that foresight. But you think about in the 70s talking about conserving water, putting a brick in the toilet or, you know, things that had to do with the environment or, or composting, that wasn't necessarily something that was being done all over the place. She seemed to be someone who was very interested in seeing that happen. That's very true, Mike. She was definitely ahead of her time and, and a visionary, but in a very practical way. Um, she, she was not, uh, how can I put it? Um, her personality was very pleasant, and I think she was able to move forward on a lot of these things. Uh, because she just presented things in a very practical way, like putting a brick in your toilet. Imagine that. And, a, a, you know, a city official saying something like that. People liked her, even people that were on the right side 
of the political spectrum had a great respect for her, even if they didn't agree on everything. Um, she was clearly doing her job and doing it well. Well, she lived to 92. That spirit of hers will always be here in this city. Before we let you go, Diane, how are things with you? Uh, Very well, thank you. Yes, uh, of course, we've all been going through this COVID pandemic, uh, but life goes on. Um, uh, Business is carrying on as, as usual here. Uh, in, we live in Washington, D.C., as you may know, and um, things are starting to really open up now. Uh, we were able to attend um, a significant public event last week with 300 people in attendance, and that was with the mayor's blessing. And we have a very strict mayor here, uh, Mayor um, Bowser, who um, has, has really been um, very protective of the city during the pandemic. So this, this was a huge step. 300 people attending uh, a public event. So we're beginning to feel that life may be back to normal or almost, or if we ever will see exactly normal, but uh, we'll, we'll have more of a regular life, I think, by the summer. Well, we're kind of watching because there are parts of the world, and you're living in one of them, we're a little bit ahead of where we are. What was it like to be at an event with 300 people? Did it take some getting used to? Well, I have to be honest, my husband and I both wore our masks throughout the whole event. It wasn't possible to socially distance, uh, to, to be socially distant, but we wore our masks the whole time. My husband had a double mask on, and so that just goes to show how cautious we have been. But I have to say most of the people at the event did not. Most people here um, uh, feel that... Uh, this, the vaccine is, is their protection, and we'll see. We will only see as we go through the weeks and months ahead uh, whether it provides the protection that people hope for. Well, Diane, it is great to hear your voice. Thank you so much for your words Thank on you. Jane Bigelow, and please continue to stay safe. Thank you so much, Mike. It's an honor to be able to speak about Mayor Bigelow, and uh, hope you all have a wonderful day. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. That is former London Mayor Diane Haskett talking about another former London Mayor, Jane Bigelow, who has passed away at the age of 92, London's first female mayor, somebody who, as we talked about, would say, hey, put a brick in the back of your toilet. Take down some of that water that is in there. The toilet will still flush, and you're conserving. And this was... 20 years before somebody came up with reduce, reuse, and recycle. Those attitudes were only just beginning, but she took a look and said, no, this this is something. This is something that, that needs to be done. And you've been hearing on 980 CFPL News from former city councilor Cheryl Miller and just the, the way that you were able to get different viewpoints and that that is so key in politics, provided those viewpoints are being heard. And you had somebody like Mayor Bigelow who had her viewpoints heard and was going to make sure her viewpoints were heard. And because of that, hey, we grew into a great city and we continue to be one today. Let's continue with some London politics Let's look at something that is happening now, actually happened yesterday at committees, but it has an impact on a number of individuals in this city. 
And joining us to help describe one change that we will see in the next little while is Sarah Campbell, Executive Director of Arc Aid Street Mission. Sarah, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. I know you're fitting us in on a busy day, so we really appreciate that. If we look at the temporary homeless shelter that had been set up, it appears there will be a change to that. Can you help us understand why that change is happening? Well, uh, you know, at, this whole project was started as a, as a temporary response for winter and, you know, was designed as such. And so, you know, having uh, trailers on a parking lot, it's difficult to envision how that can be uh, ideal in the hot summer heat. Um, and we certainly, even our coalition, had been looking for land or places where we could set up that were, was more park-like and shaded um, and more hospitable for summer months. Now, our residents have told us that given the option between a hotel or that parking lot, they'd choose the parking lot because it has been low barrier and um, that's been part of their success in staying. We have people staying in those um, units that have not been successful in staying in shelter more than one night uh, at all in the previous three years. So, you know, for some of these folks, this is their first time stably being inside, supported, having access to health care. And so uh, the change that's proposed is that we will move to an alternative location that is supportive, uh, what's recommended by civic administration is hotel space. Uh, we have some concerns with that, but uh, whatever the space is that we can find, we will work as hard and diligently as we can to keep these high acuity folks sheltered and cared for. The temporary shelter we've been talking about is at York and Colburn. If you have not been working from home and have been in the downtown at all, you may have had an opportunity to see it. And Maybe you can help us to understand, Sarah, how a move to a hotel might not be something that someone would want. What is it that exists in a hotel that maybe wouldn't make it as appealing as what has been created at York and Colburn? Well, there's a couple of key factors. One is um, at York and Colburn, we have a large community space where we provide meals and um, activities, uh, structure our day around that, have community meetings. Um, and and really you get a strong community feel. That's one of the reasons. The second is that it's very, you know, it's quite secure. It's just our folks on that site. And so um, as you'll hear from, you know, housing advocates and, and others who do sheltering, it's often guests can be the problem in terms of housing stability or shelter stability that uh, sometimes the guests that come can take over the spaces. And, and we're talking about a vulnerable population in many cases, and people like the freedom to come and go as they need to and to uh, live their lives as they see fit, but they also appreciate the structure and the care of their own space um, where, you know, some of the the power structures that are set up between landlords or, or hotel operators and homeless folks, those values and, and what's important to them don't always align, right? The asset's very important. Um, for landlords and, and for the people who are living in it, it's really how they can live their lives that's important to them. Sarah Campbell joining us, Executive Director of Arcade Street Mission. Sarah, as a final point, yes, this was set up as a temporary structure. It was set up because there were great needs this past winter, especially during the pandemic. But this is in you know space right now. Is there a chance that 
you could stay and and have this extended? Well, you know, I think the the report says an alternative location that is appropriate. My hope is that we can find such a thing. If not, I certainly hope that we, you know, maybe they can look at the bylaw. I'm not sure what the ability to do that is, given the the approval of that report yesterday. Um, However, uh, you know, I'm looking long term and I'm thinking that we've done something in our community to address this high acuity homelessness that's new for our city. And over time, I think that we will find the right solution. And I have a lot of confidence that our our politicians, our civic administration, and our community partners are all aligned that uh, we have to do life-saving measures and that housing and shelter is a human right. So we'll keep working towards that together. You mentioned high-acuity homelessness, which may be a term that we're not all familiar with. What does that point to? Right. So this shelter was specifically set up for people who are not able to or have not had successful access to the current sheltering system. You know, we have great shelter providers in our city already. Um, However, for folks who are struggling with active mental health and addictions, untreated in many cases, um, folks who have long histories of trauma or active trauma in their lives, that's what we deem a high-acuity homeless person. Um, someone who's been chronically homeless, has been homeless multiple times or many, many years. Um, the process of moving from homelessness to housed, uh, in those cases, it takes some, some time, some acclimatizing to, you know, the new conditions being inside and some deep care and, and trust to get connected to the services people need to be stable in their lives. So, you know, this is a complex problem. Uh, there's no quick or easy solutions, and I'm very proud of our city for trying to address this issue, uh, and that's why Arcade will continue to put whatever resources we have and our community partners towards uh, ensuring that a service directed towards this high-acuity group does continue to exist in our city. Well, we'll see what happens throughout the month of June, and we'll stay uh, in touch. Sarah, thank you so much for fitting us in on a very busy day. Thank you. Have a great day. Bye-bye. That is Sarah Campbell, Executive Director of Arcade Street Mission. So you have what was erected as a temporary structure, and if you haven't seen it, it's at York and Colburn, and in a way kind of looks like a certain type of portable that you would see in school, but you have a number of different residences that have been created, and that was set out to be temporary because of some of the challenges that we had during the winter where there were a lot of places you just couldn't go anymore if you were someone who was experiencing homelessness. It's our pleasure to welcome right now to London Live the incoming Director of Education with the London District Catholic School Board, Vince Romeo. Vince, thanks for taking some time for us. Hi, Mike. Thanks Thanks for having me. Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about the fact that we aren't going to see in-person schooling returning. Your thoughts on that first? I, I think it's fitting that as a school district, our model since last spring has been to be ready and flexible for whatever information comes our way. And I think the announcement today was just another example of uh, continuing with the remote learning environment which we currently have in place, but also uh, to, to have been ready to welcome students back if that were to be the case. 
when you look at at the safety of schools, we've heard all along that schools are safe. We've been told that it was asked of the premier and of the education minister at a news conference this afternoon, and the thought was with the B1617 variant, perhaps they weren't as safe as, as they could be. Could you talk to us a little bit about the safety of schools and, and how that's felt from a board perspective? Sure thing. I, I, I can first and foremost say that the, the staff we have working in our buildings, our support staff, teachers, administrators, um, along with all the students we welcome, have been safe and have been following safety protocols we put in place at the beginning of this school year in a, in a return to school environment. As, as a school district in this city um, and in Middlesex, Elgin and Oxford counties, where we also have schools, we, we had the lowest incidents of uh, infection rates and when they did occur in our schools they were controlled um, and uh, we worked elbow to elbow with our, our health partners in ensuring the schools were safe and that protocols were followed. Our message as a school district to parents and students has always been we believe the best place for kids is in schools. We have the protocols in place to be safe but we are also on the receiving end of information like this afternoon where we wait for guidance from the ministry before we make any decisions. Did you have any heads up as to what was coming down this afternoon? Nothing officially. And uh, we, uh, over the course of the last uh, 14 to 16 months, have have been in tune with uh, these announcements as well to kind of give us a sense of what to expect when um, when when we, we officially hear like we did this afternoon. We're talking with the incoming director of education with the London District Catholic School Board, Vince Romeo. Vince, in terms of parents who might be concerned about what their kids haven't been able to get to or haven't been able to master in whatever particular grade they have been in, how do you address something like that going forward? The first thing I, I would like to say to, to, to parents, so any, any parents in your listening audience with school-age children, is, is that we recognize that this last year, year, year and a few months, has been real, and uh, the pandemic's effects have been real, not only for them as parents, but for, for the students that we welcome, their children, and our staff. I think what we prioritized at the beginning of this year, not knowing how long the remote learning environment would last, was to prior, prioritize the curriculum to focus on the outcomes that matter the most for students. Uh, our, our biggest challenge was the amount of time we were going to find ourselves in a remote learning environment and being prepared to return to school at any time. And the, the mode of learning um, does, does make a difference in a sense because there are things that can happen a lot easier in a face-to-face learning environment as opposed to what can happen online. So what we've been focusing on is prioritizing that curriculum and then focusing on ways to engage students, both academically and socially, with their peers in the online classroom environment. Vince, as a final note, we did hear the Premier talk about graduations. Graduations for every level, not just grade 8 and grade 12. Is that something that sounds doable? I was going to ask you that, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I can tell you what we will do is we will, 
we will, we will wait for further information from the Ministry of Education um, as to how that can look. I know, um, obviously, the, the size of some of our schools could pose uh, a problem. Uh, there's a whole organizational component and operational component to that. We have had virtual graduation ceremonies last June. That's what we were planning for this June. Um, and those graduation ceremonies uh, happened in those graduating years. So I think with the announcement that happened this afternoon, we will await further direction from the ministry before making any final decisions on that. Vince, great to speak with you. Thanks so much for taking the time for us today. Thanks for having me, Mike. Vince Romeo, the incoming Director of Education with the London District Catholic School Board. You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.